Emperor Alexios ordered ships to be furnished by all the countries under the Roman sway. He had a number built in the capital itself and would at intervals go around and instruct the shipwrights how to make them. As he knew that the Pisans were skilled in sea warfare and dreaded a battle with them, on the prow of each ship he had a head fixed of a lion or other land animal, made in brass or iron with the mouth open and then gilded over, so that their mere aspect was terrifying. And the fire which was to be directed against the enemy through tubes he made to pass through the mouths of the beast, so that it seemed as if the lions and the other similar monsters were vomiting the fire. Then the man called Count Eleemon very boldly attacked the largest vessel at the stern, but got entangled in its rudders. And as he could not free himself easily, he would have been taken had he not with great presence of mind had recourse to his machine and poured fire upon the enemy very successfully. Then he quickly turned his ship round and set fire on the spot to three more of the largest barbarian ships. At the same moment, a squall of wind suddenly struck the sea and churned it up and dashed the ships together and almost threatened to sink them. For the waves roared, the yardarms creaked, and the sails were split. The barbarians now became thoroughly alarmed, firstly because of the fire directed upon them, for they were not accustomed to that kind of machine, nor to a fire which naturally flames upwards, but in this case was directed in whatever direction the sender desired often downwards or laterally. And secondly, they were very much upset by the storm, and consequently they fled. That is what the barbarians did. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And those were the words of 11th and 12th century Byzantine princess Anna Komnena uh, from her book, The Alexiad. And we, we only tweaked it slightly for performance purposes here. And it was brought to life by uh, Annie Reese, one of the hosts of Food Stuff. Yeah, uh, Food Stuff is another podcast here in the How Stuff Works family. It is about all things edible and potable. That's right. I don't, I don't know that they've done anything on Greek food or Byzantine food. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, just to, if, if you can't, can't tell from that, uh, that lovely introduction, uh, we are going to be talking about the Byzantine Empire and we're going to be talking about a secret weapon of the Byzantines, a weapon so secret that we're not even really sure what it consisted of in detail today. We're talking about Greek fire. Right. The nuclear bomb of the Middle Ages. Yeah. I mean, really, it was ahead of its time. It was like napalm in the Middle Ages. It was like a flamethrower in the Middle Ages. Right. So we want to explore all the ins and outs of this ancient secret superweapon. I don't know. Does it qualify as superweapon? It's kind of small scale, but well, it's in terms of power and awe at the time, you could maybe consider it a super. I weapon. would think so. I mean – it was a it was a super weapon that definitely inspired terror mm-hmm. and was extremely effective in particular situations, as is the case with a lot of shock and awe weaponry. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it can't win or it's not going to win a battle on its own. Right. In the same way that, you know, a tank is pretty great, but a tank needs infantry support if it's going to be effective, that sort of thing. Right. So to explore the world of Greek fire, all the science, all of the speculation about what it was, how it worked, how it came to be, we've got to first give you the setting. 
So what was the Byzantine Empire and, and where was Byzantium? All right. So we're basically talking about the region of the southern Balkans and uh, Asia Minor. Modern-day uh, Turkey. Yeah, modern-day Turkey and part of Greece. Uh, but in the middle of the 6th century, this was an empire that, that stretched out you know, all the way across the, the North African coastal region from the Atlantic to Egypt, uh, along with southern parts of Spain and Italy. Uh, now, to give you sort of a timeline of this uh, of this empire, in 324, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, moved the capital of the Roman Empire itself to Byzantium. And of course, we know Constantine was the first Roman emperor to claim to have converted to Christianity. Yes, so that's key. So it's you know Roman Christian Christianity here, the Holy Roman Empire. Now, this went for this was a successful empire for quite a spell here. It wasn't until uh, 1453 that Constantinople, the capital, fell to the Ottoman Empire, and afterwards, of course, became Istanbul. Hmm. Yeah, as the uh, the Animaniacs song uh, would illustrate for us. Uh, so all in all, this is an empire with uh, uh, 1,129 year history. Yeah, though its borders changed a lot over the centuries. And during its final years, the Byzantine Empire was reduced to a relatively minor state around the Constantinople area. But it's strange to realize that in some form – the Roman Empire didn't actually end before the Middle Ages. And I, I usually think of when did the Roman Empire end? I think of the Western Roman Empire around the city of Rome, right. which, of course, you know, fell and that that's ushers in what historians generally uh, have thought of as the Middle Ages in Europe, you know, around the uh, the middle of the first millennium. But if you consider the eastern part of the Roman Empire the Roman Empire, which it certainly did consider itself the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. the Roman Empire in some form lasted until the Renaissance in Europe, which is a just a bizarre thing to consider. It just doesn't mesh with my normal view of history. Yeah, yeah. It, I think that's important to note. Uh, likewise, I, I often fall into the trap of sort of thinking of the Byzantine Empire and thinking of it like sort of vaguely as a much smaller and briefer um, affair than it actually was. Now, it's worth – it's also important to note here that nobody actually called it the Byzantine Empire during its time. Mm -hmm. You only called inhabitants of uh, Constantinople or a couple of other areas Byzantines. Now, the subjects of the emperor themselves, they, they called themselves Romans. Uh, Constantine I, as we mentioned, was the, was the first Christian ruler of the Roman Empire, or mm -hmm. at least took on that mantle. Uh, he, and he moved the capital to Constantinople, and as such, they were the Christian Roman Empire. And the Western remnants of the Roman Empire proper, you know, they fell into barbarians' uh, successor kingdoms. So we mentioned that the Byzantine Empire had um, you know, over a thousand-year history. And during this time, it was pretty much constantly at war in some form or another. Yeah. It was constantly challenged by its neighbors. In the east, you had first the Persian Empire and then various Islamic powers later on. And to the north, there were the, the Slavs and the, uh, the Turkish Avars. There were the Bulgars, the Hungarians, the Serbs, and finally the Ottoman Turks. Um, I know it seems kind of weird that you would put them with the north, but like that mm. was sort of the shape of, of, uh, of uh, geographically of the, uh, the territory at the time. Mm -hmm. So 
And, and then likewise, in the West, they were constantly engaging in these tense struggles with Greek city-states and other Roman remnants, uh, often with complications from papal politics. Yeah, and some of those complications get very complicated. Like one of the things a lot of people don't realize about some of the Crusades is that, yes, the Crusades were waged by uh, European Christians, often against Muslims and Jews, but they also sometimes fought the Byzantine Christians. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's the the whole tale during the Crusades of the uh, essentially the sacking of uh, of Constantinople by the Christian Crusaders. Yeah, yeah, for so, usually for complicated petty political reasons. Yes, but you know they survived all this time, and one of the, and one of the reasons was that they were essentially still uh, the the Roman Empire in spirit. They were well organized. They uh, boasted strong fiscal and military systems. Uh, again, testaments to their Roman history. And, of course, they had a secret weapon. There's nothing better than a secret weapon. There, Really, we were talking about this earlier. There, are, How many secret weapons can you really think of, uh, even in the modern age? Well, I mean, you can – definitely the modern parallel that comes to mind is the race for the atom bomb. Yes. Uh, during the World War II era. It's, it's a thing where if you go back and read it at the time, e- even if you – you know, don't think that the atom bomb was a good thing for humanity to have discovered. I mean, we, we probably might a lot of us agree that the world would be better if nuclear weapons didn't exist, though some people might argue otherwise. Uh, some people might say that it's a really useful deterrent against more large-scale conventional war. Mm-hmm. But it's a scary time. It's like trying to imagine what would the world have been like if the Nazis had gotten the atomic bomb first or other scenarios along those lines. Yeah, yeah, I think that the, the atomic bomb along with uh, various biological and chemical weapons are, are probably the, the, the best uh, analogy we have. But then to think of this in the Middle Ages, to, to extrapolate similar circumstances regarding state secrets and, and weapon systems, uh, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. Right. Now, Greek fire is certainly much smaller in applied scale mm-hmm. than a large-scale bomb like an atomic weapon in the 20th century. But – it may be no less terrifying in the way that it's represented in legend. Oh, yes. Yeah, because we're talking about uh, – essentially, we'll get into the details here. And you already had an example from the intro. We're talking about ships spewing liquid fire, like essentially spewing napalm onto enemy vessels, onto the water itself, causing the water to burn. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, to burn ships, which are generally highly flammable, uh, as well as the individuals aboard. You would, I would think, certainly think twice about approaching one of these uh, Byzantine vessels, especially if it had a visible, uh, you know, animal head on the front. But you can also think about it from the from the individual sailor's perspective, like mm-hmm. the terror that would be inflicted on them. Because if you, so, you imagine a naval battle, and uh, you are approaching a ship that is spewing fire. It is probably the case that because you're a medieval sailor, you don't know how to swim. And you might be far from shore. And so you were facing two possible fates, either burning alive or jumping overboard and drowning. And even if you could swim, the the water is now on fire. Yeah. So that's – it's not like you have a great option there either. Now, we know there have been all kinds of thermal and incendiary weapons used throughout history. Fire plays a big role in warfare going back to prehistoric times. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, just like uh, burning and raising villages, like a, a common way of uh, siege tactics before siege engines were invented would be to just set fire to crops and villages surrounding a besieged uh, castle or fortification to essentially – 
draw them out to say, like, we're going to torch everything you have if you don't come out to fight us. Well, it kind of goes back to our episode on fire. Fire is is the basic, uh, you know, the basic aspect of human technology. Right. So as long as we've had it, we've used it for uh, <laughs> to, to kill each other and to keep each other alive. Right. And so it's it's quite clear and quite easy to see why it's a useful tool in war. Also, it has that kind of scary element because it's not just a directed weapon like an arrow or a sword. It has a life of its own. You release fire into the wild and it can sort of carry on with its own business without any, completely unaided by your continued efforts. But I want to know when was the first time we saw this specific version of incendiary weaponry used. When does Greek fire itself first come on the scene? Well, I'm glad you asked, Joe. It was the year 678, and uh, in Constantinople was in uh, kind of a tight spot. Right. And so going forward from this point, I just want to acknowledge one of our main sources. It is a, a, a really interesting paper back from 1992 in the journal Technology and Culture by Alex Rowland called Secrecy, Technology, and War, Greek Fire and the Defense of Byzantium, 678 to 1204. So a lot of our information going forward is going to be coming from here, but we'll mention a few other sources mm-hmm. also. So it's 678, Constantinople, we're under siege, what's happening? Okay, so the Caliph Mawija has dispatched his fleet for the fifth consecutive time, and he's taken the peninsula of Sizikus. And here, just south of the Byzantine capital, uh, the entire uh, uh, Arab naval forces here, they've converged with the army, and they're going to march on Constantinople and besiege it. Okay, so we have the Arab forces moving in. And Constantinople, how's it going to defend itself? Well, I mean, l- luckily it is a it is a very de- defensible city at the time. They had mm-hmm. so they have a lot of a lot of stuff going f- for them. But the, this is the thing about being besieged is that it is a a a, a long term affair. Usually, it's about a st- a steady strangling of the city mm-hmm. of the the nation even. But being a coastal city, Constantinople has a lot of uh, a lot of its power and resources in its ability to travel the seas, right? right? So if you've got a fleet coming in to attack your ability to travel the seas, that's no good. That's right. So they uh, luckily Constantinople had a a strong navy and pretty much had a strong imperial navy uh, at least isolated to uh, Constantinople for the you know the duration of of the empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what they needed, though, was, a, was a, a particular weapon. They needed something that would really give them a strong advantage, an advantage the likes of which we, uh, we, we, we heard in the intro to this episode. And that's where a particular individual comes into play, Kalinikas. Yes, the stories tell us that Kalinikas was a Syrian architect and engineer from the town known at the time as Heliopolis of Syria. And he arrived in Constantinople as a refugee after he'd been driven out of his homeland. So he'd recently escaped the Arab conquest of Syria. He brought his uh, military ideas and inventions with him to the Byzantines. And essentially, he showed up on their doorsteps and uh, offered them the science of napalm, really, is what it breaks down to. Now, how do you imagine that scene breaking down? Like he knocks on the city walls and says, I have a flamethrower. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you had, he had to make a, a, a case for it. Like, hey, I've got some ideas. They're they're really explosive. You're going to love them. <laughs> or may, maybe there was a posting. Hey, we have an opening for a, uh, you know, a weapons uh, engineer, a chemical engineer to help us with our weapon systems uh, for this upcoming uh, siege. What does a medieval weapons pitch meeting look like? I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I guess it's, you know, it's like an audience with the, the king or, or dignitaries. And then, uh, you know, he's probably showing them some plans or something. Right. 
However, he ended up pitching it. Uh, it was uh, accepted. Uh, in fact, it was even referred to as uh, Kalinikos fire, as well as Roman fire, marine fire, liquid fire, artificial fire, and, of course, Greek fire. Now, it probably wasn't referred to as Greek fire at the time by mm-hmm. the Byzantines because they didn't even think of themselves as Greeks. I think that name, that appellation came later from Western Europeans, right? Like crusaders would encounter this or something like it. And because they were going east, when they saw it, they referred to it as Greek fire. Right. And then the name, that name in particular, Greek fire, ends up being applied to various things that might not have been the same Greek fire weapon system or might have been just something just, you know, remotely similar. Like maybe it just involved flaming oils of some sort. Yeah, I've got a comment on that, actually. So according to Kelly DeVries and Robert Douglas Smith in their book, Medieval Military Technology from University of Toronto Press in 2012, basically there were many different types of weapons referred to as Greek fire in the extant literature throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, so there were – they separated into three main categories. You've got liquid fire pumped out through a nozzle – and then a liquid incendiary weapon that's hurled in small ceramic grenades. And then you've got later solid incendiaries that used explosives. So that'd be something more like gunpowder. Mm-hmm. For the purposes of today's discussion, we're focusing primarily on that original Byzantine marine fire, which is what Anna Komnena was describing. It's a liquid jet of flame that vomited out of a nozzle on the ends of ships. And for, for the purposes of, uh, Simplicity, we could also call it Kalinikos fire because that specifies that it's what was used in the 8th century by the Byzantines in their ships, these flamethrowers coming out the prow of the, uh, of the Byzantine warships. Now, uh, in, in the case of this initial rollout of Greek fire, uh, it turned, uh, it was able to help turn the tide according to, to, uh, the accounts. They were able to drive back the invaders and the remnants of the Arab fleet were then subsequently lost in a mighty storm. And when the forces again attempted the investiture of Constantinople in 717, the Byzantines again used the Greek fire. And this time they apparently had a an improved formula and the invaders were driven off once again. And, and this is a kind of a key historic moment, by the way. Some historians rank it only under Charles Martel's victories over uh, Islamic invaders in southern France during the 730s as a key stop point for Muslim expansion into Europe. So it's simply one of those moments in time where it's hard to imagine a timeline forking off in an alternate direction. Yeah, I always love those things in history, mm-hmm. like those key moments where I, I've i never heard of uh, like an alternate history that explores what would have happened if things had gone the other way. Uh, but I want to read that book. Maybe it's out there. Yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe HBO will adapt it. It sounds <laughs> equally problematic to uh, to have like a modern s- series showing what a uh, – you know, what a predominantly Islamic, uh, at least, uh, you know, at least Eastern Europe would have looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to try and try and picture how that would have come together yeah. in an alternate timeline. But w- we should focus on the technology itself because that's the core of today. What was Greek fire? Yeah, I mean, as you you might imagine with a wonder weapon such as this, it, it was a matter of state secret. And it's a secret that seemingly died with the death of the Byzantine Empire uh, in the 1400s. So, or maybe much earlier. Or, yeah, or much earlier, later. We'll, we'll get to. Uh, and to this day, chemists and historians, they've, they continue to devise possible recipes for it and thoughts not only on the, the, the just the, the liquid itself, but also the weapon system in, involved here. What, what, what were they cooking up? How were they dishing it out? And 
To what degree was anyone ever able to replicate it? Fascinating questions we will explore in depth when we come back from this break. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, we're on to the Greek fire itself, the chemistry of the liquid substance, the liquid flame, and the delivery system for it. So what do modern scholars think about Greek fire, and and what do we know about Greek fire from these medieval descriptions that we can use to try to figure out how it worked? Yes, Let's get into the, uh, the, the, the main properties of Greek fire. Though, though before we do that, I do want to point out one, uh, point that, uh, Roland makes in his, uh, his paper, and that's that historian, uh, Theophanes wrote that, uh, Byzantine, the Byzantine emperor already had a fire ship program in the works two years before the arrival of Kalinikos. So it, it remains a mystery exactly what the nature of the prior system, uh, weapon system was and how he improved upon it with presumably with his formula. Yeah, that is one interpretation I've read that some modern historians look at this and say, okay, Kalinikos, if you assume he was a real person and he did show mm-hmm. up uh, to help with the Greek fire system, that what he actually did was not invent Greek fire or bring them Greek fire, but that he improved upon their recipe, that they already had some kind of chemical incendiary weapon that could be lit and and tossed out over enemies, but that he made it much more powerful. Yeah. And what are the key characteristics that are often reported about this powerful version of Greek fire or Kalinikos fire? Okay, so there there are basically four of these uh, properties. First of all, we've already alluded to this. It burns in water. Some say it. Some say it was ignited by water, but this is almost certainly uh, a myth. Uh, it's also said that only vinegar, sand, or urine could extinguish it. Hmm. Now, the next key characteristic, it was a liquid. It was something that was vomited forth from uh, one of these animal heads or a siphon. Number three, at sea, it was shot from tubes or siphons and very rarely used on land. Okay, so it mainly came out of the prow of a ship. Right. Yeah, this, and it's something that would be you know, squirted or blasted out of uh, uh, an aperture. And then finally, and this is this one is really interesting, and we'll come into some of the theories uh, that we're going to discuss. There was smoke and a booming sound as it vomited forth from the tube. Hmm. And this is about as detailed as our understanding of the properties get. Uh, like most of the theories that we're looking at are going to be speculating based on these characteristics. Now, all but the use of tubes you can find in prior incendiary weapons used by other people, such as uh, various historical accounts of just flaming oils being used. Fireworks existed in the region as early as the 4th century, and those could have created smoke and noise. But uh, still, there are a lot of questions regarding you know what, what exactly is going on here. Well, let's chase those questions, man. All right, let's do it. Okay, so what are some potential ingredients that have been hypothesized by modern scholars that would have been constituents of the Greek fire recipe. We know that it was probably more than just one thing. Right. Yeah. Now, one thing that has been suggested by modern scholars is the idea of quicklime. Quicklime is the common name for calcium oxide or CaO. And this is something that can be produced from lime bearing uh, uh, things found in nature, such as seashells or in limestone. You can do like a, a heat reduction of these things to produce quicklime. So it is something that was known to the ancient world. Now, the supporting evidence for the idea that quicklime was involved in the Greek fire recipe was that, of course, the production of calcium oxide was technologically feasible at the time. It could have been done. 
In fact, uh, people had been making quicklime for a long time, and it had even been used as a chemical weapon by the Romans hmm. hundreds of years before. But uh, if you believe the part of the story that says Greek fire ignited on contact with water, quicklime could help you get there because calcium oxide produces a strong exothermic reaction in, on contact with water, meaning when you get it wet – it releases heat. And you can see videos of this. They're, they're like demonstration videos on YouTube where someone will get a container of quicklime and they'll just pour some water on it and it immediately starts smoking and getting hot. Sometimes it'll even melt the container that it's sitting huh. in. Now, it's not flames, mind you. So that's part of the counter evidence. Of course, mm. quicklime itself doesn't produce fire, but a heat-producing chemical reaction. So the quicklime couldn't be the only ingredient. Also, some counter evidence is that uh, Roland points out the Greek fire was reported to have burned on the decks of ships, not just in the water. And if quicklime was the ignition catalyst, it would need to be heated by coming into contact with water. So that might weigh against the quicklime idea. But perhaps you could imagine a recipe in which quicklime is combined with another fuel or mixture of fuels – and when the Greek fire preparation comes into contact with water, the water reacts with the quicklime, triggers the exothermic reaction, so it suddenly heats it up, which increases the temperature of the mixture past the ignition point of the fuel, causing it to catch fire. See, this this makes a certain amount of sense because it you're envisioning something that's not a primitive flamethrower so much as a chemical concoction that's going to spray safely or semi-safely away from the warship mm-hmm. and then is going to hit the water near the enemy ship and there uh, ignite. Right. But as we've said, there are some complications there. One of the things is just that a lot of modern scholars think that the burns on contact with water part is a myth. I think there's more credence given to the idea that it could land on top of the water and continue burning mm-hmm. while it's wet, like while it's in the water. But the idea that it uh, it would only ignite when it was touched by water, I think fewer people accept that part of the story. Also, as Roland points out, and as I said a minute ago, it lands on the deck of the ship and the ship's burning. Yeah. So in order for that to work, if it's triggered by quicklime, if that's what's raising the temperature of the mixture to the ignition point of the fuel, that probably wouldn't happen on the deck of a ship unless the deck of the ship is always wet, which maybe it is. I don't know. And not to get too far ahead of us, but then that also makes me remember that there, there's some allusions to the idea that one could defend against Greek fire by having like soaked uh, items like soaked tarps and whatnot on your ship. So right. that, it, w- that would not seem to work if this was uh, indeed the uh, the quicklime. Right. And that would make the quicklime-based version a really devilish weapon. Like yeah. you thought you could put it out with water or you thought you could put up some damp rags to help protect yourself. But in fact, that would just make it even hotter. Huh. I mean, and really – one of the key aspects of the weapon uh, that's actually mentioned in the opening narration here today is that it made fire behave in a way that that people were not expecting. Right. Uh, be it you know fire that's coming at you laterally, or uh, if this is a, a, actually a you know a true interpretation, then uh, you know fire that is springing up from the water without a, a visible spark. Yeah, it's scary to imagine. All right. Well, uh, OK, that's quicklime. What's what's our next potential candidate here? OK, Roland also mentions that uh, some scholars have debated the inclusion of calcium phosphide 
in the uh, in the Greek fire mixture. So calcium phosphide is a chemical compound, it's Ca3P2, and it's a salt stable in the form of a crystal powder, commonly used as an ingredient in rat poison. Huh. So how does it kill rats? Well, when calcium phosphide comes into contact with water or acids, it reacts to release phosphine gas, pH 3. It's devilish. Now, we've talked about phosphine gas before. We mentioned it. I think phosphine gas was one of the proposed uh, solutions to the question of what's causing will-o'-the-wisp phenomenon. Oh, yeah, yes, in Be- our will-o'-the-wisp episode. Yeah, so one of the reasons is that phosphine gas is highly toxic, highly uh, flammable, and that it can spontaneously form explosive and igniting mixtures with the air. So when exposed to the air, it can just sometimes start up a flame on its own. You don't even need to ignite it. Now back to the rat poison. What happens when a rat eats it? Well, a rat eats the calcium phosphide or any other metal phosphides. Other metal phosphides are sometimes used as rat poison. And then the act of digesting the chemical releases the killer phosphine gas inside the rodent's body. Hmm. Calcium phosphide has also been used for ignition properties in things like maritime flares. Uh, so what are the, what's the supporting evidence that this could have been an ingredient? Well, it reacts with water to produce heat, uh, kind of like quicklime, right? So a byproduct of the reaction is phosphine gas, which is highly flammable potential fuel. And this could explain stories of Greek fire being ignited by water or burning on water. And phosphine gas can spontaneously form explosive mixtures, like I just mentioned. So this could be really nasty, horrible stuff to be shooting out at a ship in a naval battle. You'd be not only shooting out stuff that can spontaneously ignite and react with water in a way that ignites, but also it would be producing poison gas. All right. Well, that that sounds like a, a terrifying weapon. Uh, how, what's the counter evidence? Well, basically, it's that people have tried this in experiments and it doesn't seem to match the way it's described. Uh, Roland points out in his paper that 20th century experiments with preparations containing calcium phosphide didn't exactly match what was being described okay. in the ancient sources. So a lot of modern scholars think it's kind of unlikely that this was one of the ingredients. All right. So we've talked about quicklime. We've talked about calcium phosphide. What's our next candidate? How about saltpeter? Hmm. This is one of the big debates in the history of uh, chemi- is this is this <laughs> is this the area of ultimate controversy in the 20th <laughs> century? What was in Greek fire? But there have been debates actually. Uh, and one of the big debates in this is apparently was there saltpeter in it or not? And there are pro-saltpeter scholars and anti-saltpeter scholars. And it looks to me like in recent decades the anti-saltpeter camp has sort of won out. Well, one of the the key reasons here of course is that if saltpeter was used in Greek fire, this would make Greek fire arguably the first gunpowder weapon, uh, beating uh, the ninth century Chinese discovery of its properties. So there's really a lot of uh, you know cultural pride uh, uh, swept up in this. Uh, who was the first? Uh, who were the first people to figure out how to kill people with saltpeter first? Well, let's explore the saltpeter and see if we can puncture that pride now. Saltpeter is the name for actually a group of nitrogen-based compounds, primarily potassium nitrate or KNO3. Now, potassium nitrate is, again, a salt that has many different uses in all kinds of technological fields. It's in food preparation. It used to be used all the time as a preservative in cured meats. You can still sometimes see it used in food, but it's a little less common these days. Uh, it's also been used for various medical purposes, including both to suppress and enhance the libido. Uh, <laughs> huh. 
I, I'm not convinced that it would actually do either one of those. I haven't seen any evidence, but you know, people thought a lot of things, did a lot of things. All I can imagine is somebody like leaving a, a trail of gunpowder to their libido and then like setting it <laughs> off. <laughs> but it also, saltpeter was also the primary ingredient in black powder, which was the original gunpowder. Now, we have to specify black powder, original gunpowder, because modern bullet cartridges tend to use uh, a, a different ignition material. But uh, the original gunpowder... It manages to shoot bullets out of guns because when you set it on fire, it burns very rapidly and creates lots of rapidly expanding gases, which as they expand, push the projectile out the barrel of the gun very fast. So the traditional mixture for black powder was 75% saltpeter, 14% charcoal, and 11% sulfur. Here's something you might have wondered before. If the gunpowder is packed down under a musket ball or it's inside an enclosed rifle cartridge, how does it burn? I mean, don't fires need to be exposed to oxygen in order to burn? And that's where the saltpeter comes in. That's that's the role oh, of the okay. KNO3. The charcoal and the sulfur in the gunpowder are the fuel that burns, and the saltpeter is an oxidizer providing the oxygen atoms that allow the ignition reaction to happen without the gunpowder being exposed to open air. Now, this argument for saltpeter's inclusion in the Greek uh, fire formula, uh, this was argued by French chemist Pierre-Eugène Marceline, or P.E.M., Bertillot, who uh, lived 1827 to 1907. Now, Bertillot was a really interesting guy, and I'm sorry to take us on a tangent, but I'd hate it if I didn't <laughs> point out this interesting idea on the technological terror and war from Bertillot's perspective – we covered him in an episode of Tech Stuff that I guest hosted with Jonathan Strickland. Tech Stuff, if you don't listen, is another podcast. You're in the House of Forks family hosted by Jonathan Strickland. And it was an episode I went on there to do with him that I've been wanting to do for a while about five ways people predicted that technology could end all wars. Spoiler alert, none of them worked. Uh, but Bertillot was one of these guys. And the short story on how uh, he predicted it was that Bertillot predicted that by the year 2000, Engineers would create synthetic materials indistinguishable from organic matter, and this would be things like meats, vegetables, alcohol, tobacco. And he, he, he basically saw the whole world as this big solvable chemistry problem. This is wonderful because it, it actually ties in with, of course, the Star Trek utopian vision where you food just replicators, go to, yeah, the food yeah. replicators. You show, go up to a machine and you, you know, type in steak and you get your steak. Yeah, exactly. So he saw this sort of uh, world of chemical abundance, a post-scarcity world. And he also imagined that we could make food so nutritious and pure that it would alter our moral nature. In other words, like through the power of chemical engineering, we would make ourselves better people. And I just want to do a quick quote from an interview of his from uh, McClure's magazine published in 1894 uh, and uh, Bertolo says in this interview, man should grow in sweetness and nobility because he will have done with war, with existence based upon the slaughter of beasts. Perhaps, and this is only a dream, remember, synthetic chemistry or something we might call spiritual chemistry will develop means to as profoundly alter man's moral nature as material chemistry will change the conditions of his environment. I love that. 
Now, that's kind of funny in the context of exploring the ancient chemical problem of how to make a, a mixture that best burns people in their ships. Well, but, I mean, it, we come back down to the nature of technology again, right? Fire, as soon as we learned how to master it, we used to keep ourselves warm and to cook food, but also to, to terrorize each other. And in chemistry, I mean, you look at especially uh, in the advances made by German chemists, uh, you know, at the, uh, you know, the, the dawn of the 20th century, um, the, you see, uh, you see the, the, the sort of the butting heads of the chemistry of life and the chemistry of death. You know, we're, yeah. we're learning how to manipulate uh, chemical properties to better grow pro- crops. We're, we're figuring out how to treat uh, illnesses. We're, you know, accidentally uh, inventing MDMA. Uh, and at the same time, we're creating horrific chemical weapons to utilize against each other. Totally. And so it's clear that Bertolo had his mind on not just chemistry at the, you know, molecule level, but chemistry at the societal level, what chemistry meant for humankind. And so one of the things he was thinking about was chemistry and war. And so he turned his mind to this problem of what was in Greek fire. And he argued, yes, saltpeter was an ingredient. Uh, supporting evidence for saltpeter would be one thing is that the, in the descriptions, the Greek fire shoots out of the nozzles mm-hmm. on the front of the ships as if explosively, right? Yes, and there was also uh, reportedly a boom and, uh, and a smoke, great smoking effect. So, you know, so others would argue, well, there's some sort of a hydraulic system that's mm-hmm. responsible for this. But you could also imagine, I mean, we, we're we told there was a booming noise. We're told there was smoke. Right. So it, it, it leads you to believe that there's some sort of explosive reaction taking place here. Yes, but on the other hand, uh, what, what's the counter evidence that says no, no, no saltpeter in the Greek fire? Well, one of the things would be, as you alluded to, you know, you might have been able to produce that that lateral trajectory if you just had highly pressurized liquids. So mm-hmm. if maybe the ships were constructed in such a way that they were able, able to build up the pressure in the storage tanks and have valves that would suddenly allow it to shoot out, you could get a lot of pressure coming out of even medieval tubes. Yeah. Uh, another piece of counter evidence, where would the saltpeter come from? I think the thinking on this now is that it's not impossible that these people could have used saltpeter, but there's no direct evidence that they had it. Also, uh, the British chemist and historian J.R. Partington, who uh, lived from 1886 to 1965, argued against the theory that saltpeter was part of Greek fire. And Partington argued in a book called A History of Greek Fire and Gunpowder in 1960, the Greek fire was made from distilled natural petroleum. We'll get there in just a second. Uh, for, that would, would have been found on the beds of the northern shores of the Black Sea. Hmm. And that what it was done was what we were just describing. It's pumped at high pressure over a flame like a modern flamethrower. Huh. All right. Now he suggests that a primary ingredient is this distilled natural petroleum. And this is a common consensus, I would say, of scholars who look at Greek fire today. So what's this stuff? All right, so there's there's a word that is used for this stuff, but I understand it's also one of these problematic uh, terms that is kind of broadly applied, right? Yeah. And that is naphtha. Right. So it appears that various flammable liquids throughout the ages have been called naphtha at different times and places. But in this case, we're probably talking about crude oil in some form, some filtered form, right? That's right. Uh, one of the books that I was uh, looking at for this is um, – uh, the Fall of Constantinople by uh, Nicole Haldon and Turnbull. Uh, and the authors, they, they write that Greek fire was likely distilled petroleum, perhaps 
with a resin added, like some sort of a tree sap. Like a pine resin. Yeah, a pine resin. Uh, and this would have been added to thicken it, thicken it up and prolong its burning on the surface of the water. Mm. Now, the author, uh, Halden, the middle one there, is John Halden of Princeton University, and he's written uh, some solo papers as well on Greek fire. Uh, you know, he, he suspects that, yeah, that it was petroleum-based liquid modified uh, to increase its potency. He thinks that the key ingredients were a highly flammable light crude oil, uh, this would be the the naphtha, and that pine resin, which uh, not only would have uh, made it uh, burn more on the surface of the water, but it would have been sticky. It would have made the, the mixture burn hotter and longer in general. I've actually read that one of the names, one of the contemporaneous names for Greek fire was sticky fire. Oh, well, God, you know, that gets... That reminds me a lot of the accounts of the the use of actual flamethrowers. Yeah, I think I've gone on this this tirade before on the podcast, but I feel like we we watch Aliens, we watch The Thing, we watch shows with flamethrowers in them, and yeah, those look pretty terrifying uh, on their own. But mm. we don't really have a, a true picture of the horrifying nature of, say, a World War II era flamethrower. Yeah, where, well, where you're shooting this jellied, flaming death on people. Right. I mean, we see it used most often these days, I think, in science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, where it's used against, like, aliens and monsters. I mean, y- you got to realize that a flamethrower is a horrifying terror weapon. Yeah. Yeah, de- it is definitely a terror weapon. It is, uh, yeah. So if, if you want... If you want more on that, just look into any accounts, any testimony of its usage, say in the Pacific Theater in World War II, and you will uh, you will be totally sickened. It's a it's a devastating weapon. All right, so we've discussed quicklime, we've discussed calcium phosphide, we've discussed saltpeter, we've discussed naphtha, uh, we've discussed pine resin. All of these have been hypothesized at various times and places as ingredients in Greek fire. Is that it, or is there any other hypothesized ingredient? Well, I also ran across uh, bitumen as well. So this was the world's first petroleum product. It's a sticky black viscous substance, and you we probably know it better as asphalt. Okay. Uh, but it was highly prized in the ancient world, uh, and it was, uh, for, for the longest, it was primarily a Mesopotamian uh, monopoly. Mm-hmm. The stuff substance saw use in various endeavors, boat caulking, art, cosmetics. Uh, physicians in the region eventually used it to treat a number of ailments, uh, and these would have eventually, these forms of treatment would eventually spread uh, to Europe. Hmm. And uh, I was reading uh, about this, uh, this one in particular as a candidate for Greek fire in the Journal of Mass uh, Spectrometry. And this was a study of a particular ancient uh, vase from uh, 5th century BCE uh, containing a sample of bitumen. Uh, By the way, ancient Egyptians used this as a preservative for their mummies, and the word mummy even comes from the Persian word for for wax, mumia, which was used to describe uh, bitumen. Okay, so we've got all these hypothesized mm-hmm. ingredients. So in, in what way is it most likely they came together? Well, we already mentioned that Roland has something to say about that. He concludes in agreement with a scholar he names H.R. Uh, Ellis Davidson that naphtha was almost definitely the primary fuel, that pine resin was possibly used as a thickener, that quicklime may have been added to help it burn in or on water, but this is not viewed as necessary, and that saltpeter may have been added to give it explosive properties, but this is also not viewed as necessary. Uh, I found another uh, paper on this. It was in the Biotechnology Journal from the year 2006 by uh, Prokop et al. called Enzymes Fight Chemical Weapons, and the authors here say that they think the Greek fire was probably a combination of uh, resin, sulfur, naphtha, quicklime, and saltpeter. 
And of course, we have to remember that even in, even in these earlier accounts, uh, Supposedly, the, uh, the 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 Greek fire itself, the the formula for it, improved between the first and the second major uh, usage. Right. So it's possible that Kalinikos improved upon the formula, mm-hmm. that it was tweaked by others, and uh, as we'll explore in the uh, after a break here, there's also the the nature of of the secret here. What happens when you keep a secret so well? Uh, that uh, that it never leaks outside of your kingdom. It doesn't survive your empire. What does it say about the, the nature of the secret, uh, how you kept it, and how that might backfire on you when you, uh, you need to retrieve that secret later? And we're back. All right, Robert, let's say that I have captured the recipe for Greek fire. I'm, I'm an opposing general of some other army, and I know exactly what chemicals to mix and what proportions to make Greek fire. Am I now as powerful as the Byzantine fire fleet? No, you're not. And because this is interesting, you can, you can, if you have a perfect mixture, the identical mixture. Yeah, let's say I have Greek a bucket fire. of it. Yeah, you have a bucket of it. Great. What are you going to do with that bucket? Uh, do you have I'm, a ship? I'm going to maybe like throw it really hard. <laughs> no, obviously. Do you have a pump system? Do yeah. you have a, yeah, any of the – and do you have the skill to use it? Right. So from from the descriptions we know of ancient history, it's not just the recipe of the of the Greek fire that really matters in how it's deployed as a weapon in battle. That's right. I mean I, I, one can ha- cannot help but be reminded of all the um, – the various news reports going on now about uh, North Korea and its nuclear weapons program. We see the various steps and the thresholds that are being discussed, right? Like it's it's one thing to be able to produce a uh, an atomic bomb, mm-hmm. but then can you can you miniaturize it, right? Mm-hmm. And fit it into a warhead? Are you capable of of creating uh, a, a, an intercontinental ballistic missile that can uh, that can exit the atmosphere, re-enter, and hit the target? There there are additional um, systems that have to be in place to fully utilize that weapon, and there are skills that have to be in place to be able to to use it effectively against your enemy. Yeah, when you think about developments in weapons technology, and I, and I do want to be clear, we're not trying to glorify weapons technology today or say, like, look how beautiful it is, all the destruction we can mm-hmm. do. But as one important aspect of the development of science and technology, I think it's worth exploring as you look at how weapons have developed in the last century or so, a lot of what has happened, uh, with the exception of, of course, nuclear weapons and things like that, has not been so much changes in what you can blow up on, like, the incendiary or the chemical compounds there, but it's been in the delivery systems. Right. And, uh, for instance, uh, historians Halden and Byrne have argued that, uh, that yeah, this was going with what we've said. We definitely had a liquid uh, substance here. Uh, and, uh, and it was more of a scientific victory of preheating and pressurizing the liquid below deck, they argued. So this would mean that the delivery system is as important, or if not more important, than the, the, the true Greek fire and, you know, the, the formula for the stuff. Right. So you So would, it's not just the Kalinikos fire, it's the Kalinikos weapon. Right. The whole, I mean, the weapon system and also like the, it's kind of like a, a fighter jet, right? Yeah. You can have the fighter uh, jet, you can have a, like an F-14 Tomcat, but you gotta have somebody to, that's also capable of piloting that thing as well. So you have, you have, essentially you have the ammunition, you have the system, and then you have the skills required to use it in battle. Mm-hmm. 
Now, of course, uh, this this weapon system as a technology, uh, it it was again a state secret, and this was this is actually Roland's key area of focus uh, in his article. Like yeah, the keeping of this secret, and and what does it what does it do for your technology when the technology itself is secret? Yeah, Roland explains this via a framework originally articulated by a guy named Derek DeSola Price in the 1970s, where he he sets up science and technology as opposed in one very key uh, uh, aspect, which is that he calls science, quote, paperophilic, meaning enjoying publishing or enjoying mm-hmm. paper, uh, whereas uh, uh, technology is largely paperophobic, meaning it, it wants to stay secret. It doesn't want to be widely published and disseminated. Science is about sharing knowledge with all of humanity. Technology is about using science to your advantage. And for examples of of that, we can think to patents. Yeah. You know, you have a patent on your technology because no one, you don't want anyone else, even if they figure out how to do it, you don't want them to make money off of it. Right. Or the, or you want to go more historical, you can look to various guilds, trade guilds, trade secrets. Uh, and then state secrets as well. And we continue to see this play out today with everything from computing technology to, to, to nuclear weapons. Right. Now, Roland points out that, you know, even mythical weapons of great might were typically secretive in nature. And, then it, and that uh, in the real world, everyone from da Vinci to Samuel Colt took steps to safeguard the details of their inventions, mm-hmm. the, uh, and, which, you know, in Colt's case were certainly weapons and in, in da Vinci's case were sometimes weapons, depending on what he was uh, concocting. Uh, but he also does acknowledge that there's a, a countervailing viewpoint, uh, for example, from the researcher Pamela Long, right, uh, that says that, OK, so yes, Greek fire was a great state secret, but actually it's kind of an anomaly in that, right? Yeah. Because a lot of other uh, weapons technology did become widely disseminated public knowledge that Greek fire is kind of an outlier for the Middle Ages. Yeah, this this one – and that's one of the reasons it's so intriguing, this one example – of a weapon system that was uh, that, that was wrapped up in secrecy. But in what way does keeping a technology secret also undercut your ability to use it? Yes, this is this is where it gets even more interesting. So, for the for the for the formula, uh, according to Roland, they they simply made and bottled the stuff in sealed up jars. Okay, yeah, I think he calls this the Coca Cola method. Yes, he does. Right? Yeah, you just make it at the central factory. You've got your your central arsenal, and that's where you mix up all the stuff, and you jar it up, and you send it out, and you don't let anybody else see what you're doing. Right, and you're only jarring it up at a yeah centralized location. For instance, in or around Constantinople, it's yeah. not coming in from a uh, you know another province or anything. What are the eleven herbs and spices? I mean, they arrive <laughs> pre-bagged. There's no way to know. Uh, but but of course, there's more at play here than just that mere liquid, as we've we've related. So the technology entails matter, power, a tool or machine, and technique. So power plus matter via machine uh, and a human operative utilizing the technique that will give you the fire itself. The basic equation of technology, right? So the formula here, the the formula itself was the matter. The power was the fire, the spark. The machine and technique are. Largely a mystery, but, you know, a lot of the theories boil down to, uh, you know, a, a system of, of tubes and a right. like a heating uh, vat uh, under, underneath the, the deck of the ship. Right, like a pressurized cauldron yeah. that would be heating the oil or the naphtha ahead of time and keeping it under high pressure and then a valve that you could turn to suddenly release a jet of it, which would spray over a flame. And the, the author points out that 
all the information needed to design such a pressurized weapon system, this would not have been a godsend. You don't have to imagine uh, uh, Kalinikos as, a, as an alien visiting the you know, human civilization and giving them flamethrowers. No, in fact, this is highly uh, – it, it's something you can definitely imagine that people would have come up with just based on Roman learning. And mm-hmm. uh, this is something that we, we should emphasize uh, – about the state of technology and what we often refer to as the Middle Ages, what's sometimes called the Dark Ages. Now, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of historical thought in the 20th century that, you know, like Enlightenment historians who looked back on the medieval period and called it all the Dark Ages, they really were sort of underestimating the intellectual, uh, flourishing that went on in some places in the Middle Ages in Europe. Right. Uh, but at the same time, after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire throughout much of Europe, there was kind of a period in which much knowledge was lost and forgotten and fewer historical records were produced. Uh, so for, for some time, for some centuries in the later millennia, the, the later half of the first millennium CE, you could sort of say that there was a technological dark age. There was less progress for a while than there had been in the Roman period. And a lot of what we used to know how to do was forgotten. So it is kind of interesting that you see this advance taking place then. Yeah. Now, you know, so who knows if you would be able to acquire them, but if, if you could, uh, if you could get a copy of uh, Hero's Pneumatica and uh, Vitruvius's De Architectura, you would have, uh, according to Roland, the basic elements you'd need to figure out how to construct your own uh, pressurized uh, weapon system for Greek fire. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he writes the following. I'm going to read a quick quote. He says, The technique itself would have been a secret of almost as much sophistication as the formula. For without pressure gauges and safety valves, it was surely a delicate task to heat and pressurize a volatile liquid in dark and cramped quarters below deck in combat without accident. God, can I you mean, imagine yeah. that? So you're you're the uh, naphtha pumper in the belly of the uh, of the fire ship. Yes, yeah, just this. Just bottled death down there. It's going to be uh, hopefully, uh, you know, spit away from your ship and on to the others. So uh, you've just got to imagine that if they were operating ships like this, they frequently would just become engulfed in flames and kill all of the people operating them. Well, you might think so, but there are actually no reports of such accidents. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't occur. It could be a situation where, you know, especially if, if, uh, you know, if if you're, if Byzantines are writing about their fabulous weapon system, maybe you're not going to write about the failure. You're only going to write about the victories. Right. But for whatever reason, we, we don't have any accounts of, of Greek fire vessels uh, blowing up, of the system backfiring. Hmm. Now, I will say that uh, that th- there are accounts of other similar weapon systems backfiring. Yeah. Which gives us uh, gives us an idea that, well, this kind of thing might have easily occurred and it just wasn't written about or the, the writings uh, have not survived. But uh, if we look to China, uh, of all places, uh, there's a, there's actually a detailed description of a similar weapon system that was employed around 900 CE in China. So there's a, a 1044 military uh, uh, work titled Wu Jing Zong Yao. And it details a brass container fitted with a horizontal pump, gunpowder ignition chamber, and a small diameter nozzle. 
And uh, this was designed for use on, uh, you know, the ramparts of a, of a fortress or uh, where it would be used against siege weapons. But they, uh, they were also apparently used in naval battles, uh, particularly uh, one naval battle on uh, the Yangtze River near uh, Nanjing in 975 between uh, Tang and Song forces. And here's the where it ties into what we're discussing here. The Tang used it, but the wind changed and the fires blew back on their own ships. Ugh. So who knows if this was exactly the same weapon system, if it was inspired by it or if it was just independently produced. Mm-hmm. But I feel like what they're describing here taking place on the Yangtze River could easily have occurred with one of these vessels. Right. And we might not know about it. Yeah. Now, here's a question. Did, did anybody ever find themselves in the scenario I described earlier where you're you're a general facing off against the Byzantines uh, or the Romans, as they would have called themselves, and you've captured some of this fire in a bottle? Uh, did, did it ever get turned against them? Um, it does not seem that it did. But, but we do have a case – in 814, the Bulgars captured 36 siphons and jars of Greek fire to go with them. So they had, you know, the, at least, I guess, the hand, because there were uh, two types. So they had, like, the, the ship-based siphons and then, like, a handheld model, apparently, uh-huh. um, according to some accounts. So they had the, the fire. They had the uh, the technology. But apparently they didn't know how to use it because there's no evidence that they were able to capitalize on it. Uh, likewise, uh, Marcus the Greek published a, a Greek fire uh, recipe in the 12th century, but you, you didn't see that technology spread. And uh, also after 900 uh, CE, uh, Arab forces had similar incendiary weapons, but they weren't able to utilize it as the Byzantines had. So you can easily interpret this as being a situation where, okay, you have the uh, the ammo, you have the weapon, but you just don't have the training or the, you know, the systematic uh, approach to its use. Right. So in other words, to steal the secret, you'd have to steal all the components. Right. And but that uh, would be difficult, right? It would because uh, one of the keys here was the people with knowledge of all the components, according to Roland, were never in the same place at the same time. Right. So you had people build – it was a compartmentalization of military technology. Yeah. Where you'd have the people who are the pyromancers in their, you know, in their secret dungeon making mm-hmm. your Greek fire, whoever they are. But then you've also got the people who are building the pump system and the siphons into the belly of these warships and the people who are being trained in how to operate it. And you've got to have all these pieces come together for the weapon to be viable. Right. So you're going to have, I guess, a key number of overseers that are going to be able to put all of this together. But this is where we have the the power of secrecy and the risk of secrecy because uh, it seems that there were very few people – who had that information, that mm-hmm. knew how all these components came together uh, and, and were able to put it all together. Now, according to legend, you had only two families that knew the full formula, the full weapon system here and and the the, the technique for using it. And that would have been the emperor's family, the, 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 the royal family itself, and also uh, a family uh, referred to as the Lampros family. I, I've seen people speculate that the Lampros family is not a real historical group right. of people. Yeah, Roland spends a good amount of time discussing the ins and outs of both of these. Basically, I guess one of the key things to keep in mind here is just how the uh, the Golden Throne worked 
in yeah. uh, in, in in Byzantine culture. It worked by you getting murdered. Yeah, yeah, basically. Well, it worked by you murdering somebody else and then you getting murdered. Well, he he compares it actually to the Chinese uh, imperial model, where yeah. whoever the emperor is is the like, is divine, is the chosen of heaven, and so there's almost no such thing as a usurper. Uh, right, because once you've usurped it, you've got it, and you're okay with God. That's yeah. kind of the, the uh, you know a, a quick version of it. But uh, there was a hereditary nature to the throne mm-hmm. in Byzantine culture. But once you took the throne, it was yours. So there was a lot of backstabbing, a lot of uh, a lot of plots and intrigue, and uh, that's. And so here's here's a scenario: if you're planning to stage a series of murders and take the throne. Um, how, where on your priorities list is Greek fire? You know, is getting a, <laughs> No, you're worried about the people in the room with you right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're plotting to to take the throne and kill who needs to be killed, backstab or front stab whoever needs to to get it. Uh, the the passing down of that of the details of that weapon system, it either might not be a priority, it might not be possible. It's very susceptible to loss because, again, very few individuals, you know, in in the royal family, for instance, are going to have access to it. And if there is a periphery family that's close to the throne that also carries the secret, well, they're just going to be just as susceptible to back and front stabs as you proceed. Roland points out one situation where it's hard to imagine how a Greek fire protecting a family, uh, you know, a family who's known to the emperor and keeps the state secret could have survived a series of events. And that series of events was one emperor was deposed, a, a new emperor deposed him and came in. Then the original emperor came back and retook the throne. Mm-hmm. So you're imagining basically each time something like this happens, key allies are all eliminated because you don't want anybody, you know, tr- trying to get one over on you. Mm-hmm. So when the new emperor depose the original one, you imagine they probably would have killed all of the original emperor's uh, uh, supporting families. If the Lampros family somehow survived this, when the original emperor who was deposed returned to power, probably would have killed that family for supporting the usurper. Now, of course, all of this is still theoretical, yeah. like, you know, as to the exact nature of the secret. But and uh, and how it was kept, but but Roland backs it all up with the fact that Constantinople was able to keep a governmental monopoly on silk production. Um, uh, silk production, of course, relies on the uh, the use of the silkworm, and it's really uh-huh. kind of comparable in many ways because you got to you have to actually have the worms, mm-hmm. uh, and but then you also have to know how to uh, tend to them and uh, and rear them and use them. Uh, so just stealing the worms alone is not the same as stealing the technology. Now, the best kind of secrets come with magical curses, don't they? <laughs> don't oh, yes. they? Because like a great uh, tomb that you shouldn't be robbed, it'll have a curse that'll lay on you if you disturb the tomb. And a great state secret for a secret weapon should have a curse if you send this secret to the enemy. Yeah, I mean, treason should not only be, um, you know, betrayal of uh, of the state; it should be a betrayal of God, right? Uh, we actually have a, a wonderful um, a quote here, and this is from this is from the writings of Emperor Constantine the Seventh. He would have lived uh, nine thirteen to nine fifty nine, mm-hmm. uh, who, addressing his son, warned uh, that the Greek fire was a not just a state secret, but a holy state secret. This too was revealed and taught by God through an angel to the great and holy Constantine, the first Christian emperor, and concerning this, 
He received great charges from the same angel, as we are assured by the faithful witness of our fathers and grandfathers that it should be manufactured among the Christians only, and in the city ruled by them, and nowhere else at all, nor should it be sent nor taught to any other nation whatsoever. And then he goes on to insist, quote, a death most hateful and cruel awaits anyone who breaks this secret. Yeah, there's a wonderful illustrated example of this given in the quote where he talks about there was a uh, general or some some kind of major figure in the Byzantine Empire who sold the secret of how to make Greek, Greek fire to some enemies of the state. And when he tried to walk into a church next, he was struck dead at the doors of the church. Ah. There you go. I mean, it, it's, it seems perfectly in keeping with what we've talked about concerning uh, Byzantine culture and the, the rulership that, yeah, you would also just utilize uh, myth and religion to uh, help safeguard your secrets as well. Now, the author of our opening monologue, Anna Komnena, wrote about this too, right? Yes, she did. And she would have been in on the secret uh, given her position within the royal family. And she also apparently provided an incomplete formula of the fire at some point as well. Again, the the nature of a of well kept secret is it susceptible to loss, and uh, and it was eventually lost, perhaps for centuries before it was confirmed lost in 1204. And indeed, subsequent accounts of Greek fire are few, far between, and often doubtful. Yeah, after that story of it being uh, used to repel the second invasion in the early 700s, do we even really see it? used again much? I mean, uh, or the original preparation by the Byzantines? Um, I, I don't think there are any strong cases for it. Now, according to that book, The Fall of Constantinople by Nicole Halden and Turnbell, there are, there's some form of quote-unquote Greek fire that used was used twice during the final siege of Constantinople in 1453. This is, again, when they were conquered by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and uh, this was where an incoming grain ship uh, used it against attackers. And then uh, another account, the fire was directed onto a siege engine. Uh, but then again, as we've established, lots of things started to be called Greek fire right. after the concept came into vogue. So as for how the secret was kept for that long, well, we we already talked about like the hereditary nature of the secret uh, of, of Greek fire. We talked about... Uh, um, the uh, the often uh, murderous ends to uh, to uh, various individuals and positions of power mm-hmm. in the Byzantine Empire. We mentioned uh, the Lampros family and how there are doubts there. Now, Roland also discusses the possibility that the Lampros might have merely served for some time in an official capacity, something comparable, say, to the military official who carries the the nuclear football for the U.S. president. Right. You know, they might just be like a designated secret keeper, a guardian of the Greek fire something to that effect, right? Uh-huh. And he says that this is possible, but it's difficult to evaluate further. We just don't know enough about Byzantine bureaucracy. We, we have no idea who this theoretical firemaster would have been. You know, like we, we don't have any, ti- any records of such a title. And if they existed, they must have been called something else. There are various official positions that have been brought up that that could have, uh, you know, arguably been secret keepers of the fire, but either the position didn't have close access to the emperor, which would be key, or the powers of the office were diluted over time in a way that wouldn't seem to fit an office that was in charge of the secret weapon. Right. And we already mentioned how allies of the emperor very often got eliminated when the next emperor deposed him and came in. Yes. 
again, we do know that the weapon was lost, and it just becomes more of a question of of when it was lost and and how it was lost. So we know that the Byzantine Navy suffered numerous key defeats in the centuries to follow, defeats which uh, they failed to to use their legendary wonder weapon uh, to to defend themselves. Yeah, and this is another point Roland sort of gets on is that it it may have been a problem with the secrecy that – if you're so concerned about keeping the secret of how your weapon works that you are reluctant to deploy it, like if you're reluctant to hand it over to satellite allies, I mean, that's yeah. the thing. That if you're running an empire, you've got your locals who who work directly under you. You're the emperor. Your, your local people work directly under you. But then you've got all kinds of people working for you who are farther away. And by virtue of being farther away, you don't know if you can trust them quite as much. Right. And so if, say you hand over some fire-breathing, you know, Greek fire ships to them. Uh, how do you know that they're not going to eventually turn that technology against you? So maybe you shouldn't arm them with your strongest weapons. Maybe you should only keep those close to home where you've got a, uh, you know, a firm hand on the control of them and you can keep the secret to yourself. But that just limits the way in which you can actually deploy this powerful weapon. And another uh, argument here is, Okay, you have your your special secret weapon. Your your it's a sh- but it's a shock weapon. It's a surprise weapon. Right. And the thing about the that sort of weapon is that it's it's most effective when it's first deployed. So, you know what happens when you try and pull that trick uh, again and again? Your enemies begin to learn. They begin to be able to. They begin to take precautions. Maybe they you know there are some uh, accounts of being able to drape the ship in in uh, like wet cloth to help protect it. Mm-hmm. You know whether that worked or not. Who knows? Uh, the other idea being that this was more or less a, a close combat scenario weapon. You know, you're not going to be able to launch it at great distances. So then your enemies maybe realize, okay, well, they have Greek fire. We need to figure out how to uh, combat them from afar and right. annihilate them from afar, keep their keep our distance in a way that they're unable to deploy their wonder weapon. Yeah. I mean, it might be a horrifying weapon up close, but what if it can only shoot about 20 feet? Yeah. Uh, because really, it was made for galley warfare, this close combat among uh, these uh, these vessels. Now, it's also possible that as the Arab threat declined in the 8th century and no other naval power threatened uh, Byzantium until uh, – really until the Italian city-states uh, in the 12th century, that they simply stopped producing specialized fire vessels. Like if they didn't need them. Yeah, I mean it, it, because that's another key thing is that these are these are very specialized weapons. It's – if you think to any like strategy video game where you're building units for your army <laughs> – like this is not a unit you would just spam the heck out of because it's it's ultimately very specialized. You could build a thousand of them and you'll lose the war like that because the war is not being exclusively fought for this theater of battle. Yeah, and that that's also, I mean, uh, talking about the difference between naval and land powers. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the threats you might be facing would be from the land. And this is – it's uh, – now, people did talk about land-based uses for Greek fire, but it's a lot less common. It's primarily it is, yeah. in this ship-based method. And that's one reason that I sort of favor the uh, the pressurized cauldron and pump method as opposed to saying that there – well, there might have been saltpeter in it or some other kind of explosive incendiary oxidizer to get that power pushing it out. I, I think that – the fact that we primarily see it being used in ships is a good indication that they had to have a large apparatus of pumps and hydraulics in place in order to pressurize it to get it to shoot the way they wanted. 
Yeah, I think there, there's there's definitely a strong case for that. And uh, in, and, oh, and of course, uh, cost is another huge uh, factor here too. Yeah. So if this is a specialized shock weapon that is also expensive to produce because even it's been argued that the the fuel itself was fairly inexpensive still the 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 pressurized system we're talking about and the training for those individuals it becomes a very costly weapon and so does it make sense to have a bunch of fire ships just on hand if you don't need them you know and and end up you know you end up not needing them for say a century or more so looking at this whole discussion I'm trying to figure out what the main takeaway about the interplay between secrecy and technology is. Well, I mean, I think there are a couple key points. I mean, one is just that a secret of technology is more than just uh, some, you know, a patent on a sheet of paper necessarily, yeah. more than just a formula. Uh, it's 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 a lot more complicated than that. And to steal technology is uh, is is a is a grander endeavor. Uh, than simply, you know, taking a few photographs of a top secret document. It's funny how in this, uh, this paparophobic versus paparophilic conception of technology versus science, you can almost look at the same thing and call it a paparophobic technology or a paparophilic piece of science. I think about fire itself in the Greek myth, you know, so mm-hmm. you have uh, Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. Is the fire there science or is it technology? I mean, as a tool, usually we think te- think of technology as a thing and a tool and science as an abstract process. But is, isn't it, is it an example of sharing scientific knowledge or technological knowledge? Um, I mean, maybe it's that the gods think about fire as a technology, a state secret to be protected, to keep right. out of the hands of these humans. And Prometheus re-envisioned it uh, to, to take it out of the technological realm and say, this is science. This is basic knowledge that can be applied to all things and it should be shared to all people. Yeah. And I think the other aspect here is even if we strip away the military aspects and the, and the, uh, you know, state security aspects of Greek fire, it's such a specialized technology that doesn't have a lot of uses outside of this particular, uh, uh, you know, field of battle. Like it's not, it's hard to, I cannot instantly think of an example of another application for Greek fire uh, as an advanced technology, as a specialized technology. What's a peaceful use for a flamethrower? Yeah, there's there's not one. Unless, even if you go to Burning Man, you're not seeing a, a true flamethrower. Uh, you, <laughs> you know, you're seeing a, a pyrotechnic, ex, you know, exchange. You're seeing, a, a, you know, fire shot into the sky, but it's not like jellied gasoline, um, you know, squirted onto people. I mean, maybe it does make me think there are some things that are not worth sharing because there is no conceivable positive use for them. But then again, maybe that's just my lack of imagination. Maybe somebody out there, if you're listening right now and you can think of a way that a flamethrower <laughs> could be used in a totally peaceful way that harms no one and helps people live better lives or, uh, you know, builds a better – not a better mousetrap. That's a killing machine also. Well, builds a better something very sweet and wonderful. Let us know. I want to know what that is. What do you do with a flamethrower that's all happy times? It reminds me of uh, a sum e-card from years back where it was – I think it was from a medieval woodcut of – or it was made to look like one of an individual standing next to some ridiculous-looking wheeled contraption. And he had kind of a sad look on his face. And the text just read, I invent awful things. And and that's kind of what we're talking about with Greek fire. Yes, it's it's very advanced. It's very sophisticated. It's super secret. But it's really an awful invention. Uh Uh-huh. Well, this has been interesting, Robert. Yeah, Uh, yeah. This has been a lot of fun. 
so and then hopefully it uh, it stirs some interesting thoughts out there. You know, whether you're into the history of military technology or not, um, you know, just about the kind of going uh, uh, off on our our previous episode about secrets and the keeping of secrets. You know, it ties into that and and also just the nature of technology. I'm glad I learned that saltpeter can be used for ammunition, for sausage, or for sexual impotence. Yes, yes, fire up that libido. Or don't actually attempt to fire up your libido with saltpeter. Uh, or at least don't blame it on us uh, when things go awry. All right. Uh, hey, we thank you for listening in. And uh, while you're waiting on the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind to come out, why don't you head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all of the podcast episodes. You'll find some videos. You'll find blog posts and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook. Facebook, where we now have a Facebook uh, group for your uh, more detailed discussions. We call it uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. Uh, if you haven't done so already, go there, ask to join, you will be admitted, and uh, then you can engage in some longer form discussions with other fans of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and uh, occasionally the hosts themselves. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can do that the old-fashioned way by emailing us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.